Okay, that's the passage we'll be in. So again, page 920 in the Black Bibles in front of you from verse 19 to 30 is our passage for today. Let me pray, and then we'll consider this passage together. God, it's a wondrous thing. You are here. Your spirit is here. Your word is here. We are here. Now we pray for a holy collision of all of those things that our eyes might see these words and they might be more than dead print on a page. They might be the living words of God. Our ears, which would be deaf to the things of God, would be opened. Our minds, which would be darkened to the things of God, would be illuminated. Our hearts, which would be hard to the things of God, would be softened and stirred. Save us, O Lord, from the mundane repetition of hearing sermons, but instead transform us today, change us, recall us to yourself again, in such a way that it would be for your greater glory, our greater good, and the joy of all people. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last fall, we as a church laid out what we called together a three-year vision for Seven Mile Road. And, and let me just give you the background of where that came from. Uh, we as a church plant are approaching nine years since we launched Public Sunday Services. And in these nine years, I still feel like I am, at least, clinging to the language of, we're a baby church plant. Everyone else has sort of matured and grown up from that, but I won't let that go. I constantly refer to Seven Mile Road as a baby church plant. We're a baby church plant. We're a baby church plant. But I have been told and have come to see myself that at some point, a nine-year-old is an awkward baby. And so we can't be a baby church plant forever. You can't be nine and still being crawling or breastfeeding or in diapers. You've got to eventually grow up and mature. And so I'm coming to accept the reality that we're not necessarily a baby church plant. But let me tell you why I think, and there's probably a myriad of reasons, one of the reasons why it's very hard for me to let go of the language of being a baby church plant is because I am so scared of us drifting off of mission and into sort of maintenance mode. What inevitably happens to church plants, if you read about church planting at all, at some point, and usually around three to five to seven years, there's this tug at every church plant, which is once things have gone past the point of no one's ever going to come, this thing is going to fall apart, you can sort of drift from mission to maintenance. That can happen. And so I'm scared to death of a church like ours drifting from mission to maintenance. See, you see, when you're a baby church plant, there is no possibility of maintenance because there's nothing to maintain. When you're a baby church plant, you have to be about the mission of God. You have no choice because there's nothing here. And the very survival of this thing is all of us being on mission to the people outside of here. So the entire shoulders of the church are pointed to who doesn't know Jesus. And every bit of energy and effort and vision for the church plant is who does not know Jesus and how do we as a church work to see them come to know Jesus. I can tell you, when you're a baby church plant in the early years of Seven Mile Road, things here were very lean. We had no Sunday school. We had no kids ministry. We still don't have anything for youth or teens. There were no events for men, no programs for women. There were no programs at all. In fact, here's what we would say in the first years of Seven Mile Road. If you're here and you're not a Christian, everything we are is for you. 
Everything about our church is for you. We exist for you. I mean, the church is the one organization in the world that exists for those who are not its members, right? Everything about our church is for your sake. We're giving our time for you, our lives for you, our energy, our resources for you. But in the early years, if you were here and a Christian, what we essentially said to you was, we have nothing for you. We have no programs, we have no ministries, we have nothing tailored for you, nothing segmented for you. We would essentially see, if you are here and you're a Christian, you have to see yourself as if you're a missionary overseas. That's what we'd tell every Christian who came in the early years of a baby church plant. We'd tell you, listen, you have to pretend you have been sent over to Tanzania. And if you were sent over as a missionary to Tanzania, you wouldn't arrive there going, what programs exist, what services exist, what ministries exist, because you were not coming to get, you were going to give. You're not a consumer that has come here to get, you are a missionary that has gone to give. And we would plead with every Christian saying, if you're here as a Christian at Savma Road, you have to see yourself as a missionary. You have to see yourself as someone who goes and gives, not comes and gets. Now, inevitably, you can't stay a baby church plant. So you grow. And inevitably, that means that there will now be programs to run and events to put on. There will be systems to create and policies to make. And yet, while all of those things, hear me, are good and necessary, and we have them and have grown into them, I want you to hear I am still scared to death of us drifting from mission to maintenance, of us turning this thing insular and inward and it being about us and how we can make sure we have all the bells and whistles we need. So we can avoid growing up, but as we've thought about what it means to grow up and to mature, here's the vision that I believe God has given to us. What we've laid before the church is in the next three years, we are not trying to transition from baby church plant to church as much as from church plant to church planting church. Hear that again. We're not trying in the next three years to go from a church plant to a church as much as from a church plant to a church planting church. Meaning, whatever maturity, whatever size, whatever resources we have, we're trying to fight against the pull, the magnetic pull, to turn insular and inwards and become about maintenance. And instead, we are trying to push against that out and towards the mission to again give ourselves to seeing more disciples made and more churches planted. And so for us at Seven Mile Road, we're saying to one another, over the next three years, we are trying to turn the shoulders of our church plant and point it back out towards the mission, and that changes everything about what we're getting for the next three years. Meaning whether that's the job description and roles of your pastors, which have already changed to fit this vision, or the budget, which changes to fit this vision, or constantly calling members to pray and give and go towards this vision, everything we want to be is to become a church planting church, a church plant that matures into a church planting church. Well, in God's providence to us, in the passage we're looking at today, we are looking at the exemplar par excellence of a church planting church, meaning in the New Testament, if there is a model church plant that becomes a church planting church, it's the one in Acts chapter 11. 
If there was one place to go in the New Testament for here's what it looks like to be a church that plants churches, that plants churches, that plants churches, it'd be the church that Luke tells us about in Acts 11, the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch, you see, is the OG of being a church-planting church. And by the way, I had, to, I had to get permission from Binu to be able to say that phrase. I had to clear with him that that was okay for me to say. If you don't know what that phrase is, Binu will tell you what that is. Okay, so the church plant at Antioch is the original church-planting church. And if we want to be a church-planting church, we would do well to look at them. You see, because this church at Antioch, listen, was not only reaching its own city, they were doing that and doing it well, but this church in Antioch became a church that planted other churches in other cities throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, this church in Antioch became the missionary sending base for all of Paul's missionary journeys. It was from this church that Paul would go out to the ends of the earth. Without Antioch, there isn't global mission the way you read of it in Acts. And so that means here is a church-planting church. So if our desire is to be a church that plants churches, that plants churches, we would do well to learn from Antioch. And this morning, from this passage, briefly, I want to give you four characteristics about this church-planting church. Here's the first. One, in a church-planting church, the members aren't spectators who watch, but are disciple makers who do. Hear that again. If we're going to be a church planting church, in a church planting church, the members aren't spectators who watch, but are disciple makers who do. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we want to say in year nine, as we did in year one, everything here exists for you. Our lives exist for you, our ministry exists for you, our resources exist for you. Everything we are is to see you come to know Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. But if you're here and you are a Christian, would you listen to me? At any point, if you've come to see Seven Mile Road as a place to go or a service to attend on Sundays, you would be confirming my worst fear that we are drifting from mission to maintenance. If eventually, over time, this has become a place where you can attend on Sundays or a service you go to, or a building you walk into, you would be confirming my fear that we are in that drift from mission to maintenance. You see, because in a church-planting church, a Christian is not a consumer. He is not a consumer who comes to get, right? A Christian in a church-planting church is not a consumer who is given a seat to watch a show. You were not given a ticket as you walked in. We don't sell popcorn in the back. You are not here to watch a show with a few select people on a stage. There is no show for a church-planting church. You're not spectators. The, the metaphors of the New Testament are not you are ticketed members who have come to see a show. The metaphors of the New Testament are you are members of a family you are servants in a community. You are citizens of a nation. You are stones in one building. You have to roll up your sleeves. You have to tie a towel around your waist. You have to wash feet. You're a servant of this place. You're on the team with us. You see, in a church-planting church, a Christian is not a spectator, but is instead a vital part of the team who sees his own task, her own task, is I am a disciple-maker who does the work of ministry. If you're a Christian, there is nothing about the Christians in this church in Acts 11 that was laid back, 
or passive or spectating or kick their feet up and watch some others put on a show. They were not spectators. They were disciple makers. You see, what they had done is the church at Antioch, every Christian in that church pushed all their chips into the middle of the table and said, we're all in. We're all in on Jesus. We're all in on his mission. And we're all in on what Jesus is doing through this local church. All our chips are in on the middle of the table. Just listen to it with me. Acts 11, verse 19. Here's what it says. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now pause there with me. I have this question for you. How was the church plant at Antioch born? How was the church at Antioch born? If we were to talk together about how churches get planted, how can we become a church planting church? If we had a whiteboard here and said, how do we get a church planted? What would we write on that whiteboard? We'd say things like, well, we need a, a church planter. Right? And not just a church planter, sort of a rock star church planter. He's got to be a good communicator and a visionary, and he's got to be organized, and he can lead, and he can inspire, and he's got to be funny, and he's got to be a counselor, so he's got to be compassionate, and, he's, and it'd be great if he was omnicompetent, and it, it would help if he was also omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. That's what we need to do. So we've got to find that kind of a church planter. And once we get that kind of a church planter, what else do we need? We need a building for them to meet in, and we need to raise funds because this is going to take money, and then we need a website to be able to build, and then we've got to do programs and put on a service and have a killer band. That's what we need if we're going to plant a church. Now, here's what I'd tell you. In Acts 11, the church at Antioch had none of that. No building, no funds, no website, no programs, no ministry, no service, not even a church planter. Instead... Here's what you have in Acts 11. Luke tells us that an army of unnamed Christians, would you pay attention to that? Unnamed. Luke could have easily gotten a name of a few of these guys. He purposely doesn't give us a name of any of them. They're just regular Christians. An army of unnamed Christians in Acts 11 are what? They're scattered because of persecution. That's what Luke tells us. Remember, Stephen had gotten killed in chapter 7. Like blood in the water, all the sharks came out, and now all the fish were running. And so all the Christians are fleeing Jerusalem because of the persecution. And so you've got essentially Christians who are refugees running out of Jerusalem. They scatter everywhere. Some go north, and they end up in Lebanon, which is Phoenicia in the text. Some go to Cyprus. Others end up in Syria and Antioch, as we're reading here. And as they go, here's what I want you to see. At first, they're doing exactly what we've seen everyone doing in Acts 1 through 9. What's that? It's Jewish people using Jewish scriptures, speaking about a Jewish Messiah to Jewish people. Did you catch that in 19? As they spread everywhere, they spoke only to the Jews. So that's what they were doing. But if you remember last week, Acts 10, what happened? The door of Jesus' mission was cracked open to the Jews, but in Acts 10, the door gets thrown open to the whole world 
because Peter went and saw Cornelius come to faith. And now that means the mission of Jesus isn't just for the Jews, it's open to the whole world, to the Gentiles also. And so now in Acts 11, Jesus' mission isn't just going to be the Jews, that's verse 19. But in verse 20, we read that now some Christians get to Antioch. Antioch, which by the way, was then the third largest city of the Roman Empire. Meaning in all the land that Rome's empire stretched, there was Rome first, Alexandria second, Antioch third. Third largest city of the Roman Empire and an international city at that. Antioch offered citizens to foreign visitors and immigrants. And so people came, historians tell us, from Persia, from India. At this time, there would have been people from as far east as China in Antioch. So you've got this international city, half a million people within Antioch. This international Roman Empire pagan city with a diverse group of people. And now come these scattered refugees from Jerusalem. These missionaries who come from Jerusalem. 19, they only speak to the Jews. But 20, here's what we hear. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, that's North Africa, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. You know what Luke just said? That in 20, these disciples, this army of unnamed regular Christians, started speaking to the Hellenists. That's just a way of saying Greek-speaking people, as in most probably Gentiles. So put this together. They get to Antioch, and this army of unnamed regular Christians, no apostles there, no names given. Because if he gave a name, he knows that we would probably put them on a pedestal. Peter did this, or Paul did this, or Barnabas did this. But instead, we get no names, meaning in this crowd, there's no apostles, no leaders, no one who went to seminary, no one has a theological degree, no one with a title before his name or some initials after his name, no one but regular Christians. And they start doing what? They start preaching Jesus to the people in Antioch. That's what it says in 20, that they preach Jesus. Would you catch that? as in the people in the pews were preaching. And they weren't doing it from here behind a pulpit. But regular Christians were preaching Jesus. That means where? That means in their neighborhood, or in the cubicle, or in the classroom, or on the sidewalk, or at happy hour, or in any of the places that the people of Antioch were, the Christians were preaching Jesus. No one had a pulpit, no one had a title, no one had a degree, just regular unnamed Christians in the city of Antioch preaching Jesus. And now, when Acts 11 happens, it's not one Ethiopian eunuch here or one Roman centurion there. Acts 10 has thrown the door open for Jesus' mission to the whole world. So now, half a million Gentiles in the city of Antioch are hearing the gospel from these unnamed regular Christians. And what happens? 21. Luke tells us, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Here's what I'm getting at. Do you see what's happening here? The church in Jerusalem did not come up with a church planting strategy and then send out Barnabas to plant in Antioch. That happens later. It's wonderful when it does. But instead, here's what happens at Antioch. It's more like this. If tomorrow we came to find out there are so many disciples being made in North Hills, 
that the GCMs, the smaller communities we have there, the Upper Dublin group, the Willow Grove group, are making so many disciples of Willow Grove in, in, in North Hills that now word travels back to Seven Mile Road in Northeast Philly, and we go, we've got to send someone there. We've got to plant a church there. We've got to do something. There's disciples being made. Would you catch this? I only thought of this after the first service, but Jesus' great commission never says to plant churches. In fact, there's not a New Testament command to plant churches. Jesus' great commission is go make disciples. And because disciples get made, churches get planted. So it's not Jerusalem thinking up a strategy for church planting. It's regular unnamed folks doing the work of ministry, making disciples, and the leadership of the church having to catch up with what God is doing through the believers. That's what happens in Antioch. Jerusalem is having to catch up with what God was doing with regular unnamed believers in Antioch. And so, because these people were not spectators, but were missionaries themselves, Jerusalem had to scramble and figure out, we've got to send someone there. God is at work in Antioch. That's how a church-planting church plants churches. It be that we give ourselves to being a body of people that make disciples. And as you keep going through the passage... Here's what you'll see. The Christians in Antioch are not passive. They're not spectators. You consider they preach Jesus. They make disciples. They remain faithful to the Lord. You're going to see give generously. In fact, this very church will send out church planters. Nothing about the Christians at Antioch. Gathered, sat, and watched. They rolled up their sleeves. They tied a towel around their waist. They got after Jesus' mission. You see, they owned Jesus' mission because Jesus had died for them. Not just the people on the stage. Jesus had died for them. They weren't going to sit and watch. Jesus had shed his blood for them. Jesus had given them the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus had given them the Holy Spirit, they weren't going to sit in the seats and watch a few. They were going to do the work of ministry. Jesus had given them a calling. Jesus had given them a command. Jesus had given them spiritual gifts. Why on earth would they passively sit and watch? No, they were not spectators, but they were disciple makers who did the work of ministry. So here's the very practical question I would apply to you. Here's what Acts 11 would raise to the surface and simply ask us. Seven Mile Road, if you're here, you're a member, if you're a Christian... Who are you discipling in this season? Who are you discipling in this season? Who are you making a disciple? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So, I'm not asking you, have you planted a church? I'm asking, who are you making a disciple? And if in this season of your life, your honest answer to that would be no one, then brother and sister, repent with me that we have drifted from mission into maintenance. That is the definition of a maintenance mode church. That the members watch a few from their seats and maintenance mode churches never plant churches because maintenance mode churches build programs, and insularly look inside and keep the thing inside going. And if we are going to be a church-planting church, then it starts with me and it starts with you repenting of 
God, we have drifted off mission. And I don't have a name and I don't have a face of someone I am making a disciple of in this season, which means I've drifted. God, help me. God, forgive me. God, get me back on track. This is year nine, but it's like it's year one, and we've got to point our shoulders back onto the mission of God. No condemnation, but Holy Spirit conviction. I have settled into spectator mode, and that's not what Christians are. In a church-planting church, Christians are not spectators who watch. They are disciple-makers who do. Second, in a church-planting church, the ministry is done by a team of diverse people united around Christ. If we're going to be a church-planting church, it's going to be because the ministry is done by a team of diverse people united around Christ. Look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, for a whole year, they met with the church, church and taught a great many people. Pause there. So here's what happens. A church-planting church, the ministry is done by a team of diverse people united around Christ. Word travels to Jerusalem that God is doing something through the regular Christians, the army of unnamed men and women who are making disciples. And so, in response... The church in Jerusalem scrambles. The leaders go, we've got to do something. God's at work there. We've got to send someone. So they send Barnabas. Barnabas gets there, and the text says he sees the grace of God. Isn't that wonderful? He has eyes to see as he walks into Antioch that God's hand is clearly here. Why? Because what was happening in Jerusalem with just Jews, he was now seeing in Antioch 500,000 people, half a million in the city, pagans from every corner of the earth, Persians, Indians, Chinese folks, Africans, Jews, Romans, all, and conversions happening in this pagan city. The evidence of God's grace was so clear, Barnabas saw it. And then Barnabas sees this multi-ethnic conversion, this church, perhaps the first church with more Gentiles than Jews, and Barnabas encourages them, right? He exhorts them. That, that's wonderful because Barnabas' name means son of encouragement, and Barnabas always lives up to his name. Barnabas, Barnabas them. That's what he does. He affirms them. He says, brothers, sisters, I can see the grace of God. He affirms what God is doing there. He exhorts them, encourages them to keep going, to remain steadfast. And would you catch this two-second tangent? As a result of his encouragement, 24 says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. That is the second time in the text you're seeing that. Meaning after Barnabas got there, there was a second wave of conversions. And here's what's mind-blowing about that. The text doesn't tell us that Barnabas did anything in terms of ministry. It doesn't say he went out into the streets and preached, and because of that, now it came. All Barnabas did was encourage the believers who were already there. It just shows you, tangent, the power of encouragement. Like, what would we be, Seven Mile Road, if we were a church like Barnabas, that regularly had eyes to see evidences of God's grace, and then a mouth to exhort and affirm that grace wherever we saw it? 
What would we be like if we were a church with men and women who were so vigilant to see where God was at work and then so encouraging to be able to speak those words to one another, to be able to say to a brother, brother, I just want you to know I can see God's grace in your life. I just want to affirm, sister, that I saw when you did that, God's grace was so evident there. And this encouragement is all Barnabas brought to the church, but that encouragement mobilized the church in such a way that they continued to go out and make disciples, and the Lord used that to add another great wave of those who came to know Jesus. Tangent over back. So now, you've got this growing church, and you think of that. One wave with just the regular, unnamed, no titles, uneducated Christians. Another wave because Barnabas showed up and encouraged them and mobilized them back onto the mission again. And now you've got this growing church, twice over growing, and you've got one leader, Barnabas. So what does Barnabas do? You imagine, by the way, if Barnabas was like many of us, an insecure leader who would love to live off of all the eyes in the room looking at him. You imagine Barnabas could have fed his flesh with all day with this room full of baby Christians. He's the only mature leader. He could have started Barnabas.com, everybody looking to him, podcasting him, everybody seeking the resources that come from Barnabas. What does Barnabas do? Barnabas, in great humility, sees the church growing, and he goes and gets a teammate. He recruits someone else because he is not enough for this. And so 25 tells us, as a result of the growth, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Maybe it was because Saul had already gotten converted in Syria, Damascus nearby in Antioch. Maybe it was because Barnabas remembered that Saul had a call to the Gentiles. Maybe it's because Barnabas saw Saul teach and knew this was a gifted teacher and exactly what this baby church plant needs. Whatever the case, Barnabas goes and fetches Saul. And now as a team, Saul and Barnabas together, there spend a year pouring themselves out onto this baby church plant. And in fact, I want you to know it's not just Saul and Barnabas. If you skip ahead for one second, one page to chapter 13... You'll see, I'm just going to read you verse 1 of chapter 13 says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So in one verse in 13, we get five names. This is not just Barnabas, the church planter. Or Barnabas the encourager. Barnabas recruits Saul, and in their year there together, they raise up another three other men, and this is a team of five people doing this work. And friends, as you keep reading the New Testament, all the church planting that's done in the New Testament is done by teams of people. You think of that. Paul wrote Romans. You would think he would be able to plant a church by himself, and yet Paul doesn't. Paul grabs teammates. In fact, when you read the New Testament, you'll compile a list of well over 100 names of specific first names of partners and teammates of Paul's ministry. All of his church planting was done in team ministry. And we could tell you all day of the blessings and benefits God's given to us here at Seven Mile Road in having team. This has never been the work of one person. And yet, this is not just a team, but a diverse team with diverse giftings and diverse people. 
You think of this, a diverse team with even their giftings. 13.1 said, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Isn't that wonderful? Meaning, this wasn't a church that just said, we value good preaching. And so what we want is good teachers who know their Bibles and love it and can communicate it. There were prophets, meaning there were some on the team who leaned heavy into the Holy Spirit, who were much more charismatic than the teachers were. They were always sensing the new things that God was doing. And God formed this team of prophets and teachers, these diverse gifts, not elevating one and diminishing the other, all the gifts that God has we want for the church of Christ. And not just a team diverse in number, and not just a team diverse in gifting, but diverse themselves. You just consider that list for a second. In 13.1, we're introduced to this leadership team at Antioch. What's the team? Barnabas is himself a bicultural Jew, meaning he's Jewish, but he grew up and was born in Cyprus. Then you meet Simeon, who is also called Niger, literally meaning black. And so you have a black African on the team. Then you have Lucius of Cyrene, that's North Africa. Then you have Menaean, who is a friend of Herod, someone who grew up around the palace courts, upper class. Then you have Saul, who himself was a Jew, but also a Roman citizen. You've got this team from everywhere in Antioch. This diverse team, with these diverse giftings, with these diverse peoples, and as a result of that, would you catch the end of 26? And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Would you consider this with me and be encouraged with me? For 2,000 years, this is the label we've used with one another, right? That's who we are. We who trust in Jesus, we're Christians. Do you know where we got that name? From this church planting church in Antioch. And here's how we got the name. Do you know that we didn't come up with the name for ourselves? Christians didn't name themselves Christians. It's not even something that originated from the Bible as you shall now be called Christians. You know how we got the name we have 2,000 years later? The Gentiles in the city of Antioch didn't know what to call the church because they had seen Jews before and they knew what Jews were. And they had seen ethnic groups before, and they knew ethnic groups. In fact, in Antioch, there were walls separating these international communities so that there'd be peace. Everyone had their own ghettos. You had the Jewish quarters, and you had the African quarters. You had them all separated. The city of Antioch had no idea, what do you call this? They're not Jews, because it's not just Jewish. They're not Gentiles, because they're not just Gentiles. They're not just Africans. They're not just Asians, or Romans, or Persians. What do you call this? And so the Gentiles came up with a name, sort of like, we belong to America, we're Americans. Or we belong to Philadelphia, we're Philadelphians. The Gentiles in Antioch said the only way we can describe them is they keep speaking of this Christ. We'll call them Christians. The Gentiles didn't know how to describe what God was doing in the city of Antioch. The city of Antioch looked and said, we've never seen anything before. We've seen Jews before. We've seen Gentiles before, but we've never seen this. These people, they have nothing in common except this one thing. They're Christ people or Christ men or Christians. A diverse team of people with diverse gifts united around Christ and his mission. That's what the church planting church of Antioch was. Seven Mile Road, if you would just look around, you would go, there is no reason this room should look the way that it does. 
There's no reason these people should be in the same room. They have nothing in common except they are united around Jesus and his mission. If we are going to be a church planting church, it's because ministry will be done not by three elders and you get a report of what happens over these three years, but a team of diverse people with diverse giftings united around Christ and his mission. Third, in a church planting church, there is gospel-driven generosity and sacrifice. If we are going to be a church planting church, there will be and must be gospel-driven generosity and sacrifice. Would you look at verse 27? Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples, catch that, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So here's what happens. There's some prophets, and they prophesy about a famine that's going to hit the land, and it's particularly going to impact the poor, persecuted Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. And hearing this prophecy, would you catch what Luke says? The disciples, not from the leadership, the disciples, the unnamed army of regular Christians, they determined to give. Meaning what? It wasn't in the budget for that year. It wasn't planned. It was this spontaneous, spontaneous response of regular Christians. The leaders weren't twisting their arms. They weren't pulling out a thermometer with giving notches and saying, you got to hit this goal. There was no manipulation. There was no shame. There was no guilting. There's no closing the doors and we're going to pass the baskets until we raise the amount. There was nothing. The disciples determined that they would give. There was a need. And the Christians who had received the free grace of God responded by giving freely and generously and graciously and sacrificially. And would you notice, some gave more as God gave them ability to give. Some gave less as God gave them ability to give. But they all gave. Listen, Seven Mile Road. We're not going to have a fun drive at the end of this. No baskets going around for a second collection. I'm not trying to twist your arm. I'm not manipulating you. No guilting you. No shaming you. If we will be a church planting church, it will be because we give generously and sacrificially. L let me tell you, when we give here and the baskets go around, I'll let you in on my secret. Every single week, the baskets go around and we've got that awkward time of silence where we don't know what we should do and our kids are talking and we're trying to keep quiet. Every single week, I pray the same exact prayer. I say in my heart, Lord, if for 52 weeks, for the next 52 years, I pray, would you please let us be broken of the hold that money has on us? Would you let us not be afraid of giving? And would you let our church be marked by generosity? Every single week, that's the same exact prayer. I've got this deal with the Lord. Lord, if I say this to you 52 times, and if you give me 52 years, at the end of 52 years, would we be able to look back and go, God marked us with radical gospel generosity? I'm simply saying to you, here itself, we have more than what we need to fund this vision of becoming a church planting church if God would move us to gospel generosity, to gospel sacrifice. 
And it comes because the disciples are determined to give as each one has been given by God the ability to give. But would you notice here, it's not just their money they part with because we are not turning the screws on you. In fact, would you listen? These people at Antioch were not just willing to part with their money. They were willing to part with their people. For the sake of time, I won't read it to you, but if you go to 13, verse 1 had that list of the five different leaders. Verse 2 says... They were together fasting and worshiping and praying. And as they were, 13.2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. This church is not just willing to part with its possessions, but with its prized people. They're willing to give up their best leaders. Don't let this one go over your head. Listen with me. Would you consider this? Can you imagine being at a prayer meeting of a small baby church plant? They're one year old. A small baby church plant. You'd imagine at that prayer meeting, they're praying for Antioch, right? There's half a million people around them that don't know Jesus. You'd also imagine they know of Jesus' command to go to the ends of the earth, so they're praying for the whole world. And during that prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit says to this group of five men praying, I need three of you to stay, and I'm going to take two of you, Saul and Barnabas, and they're going to be set apart for a work that I have for them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on Saul and Barnabas and sent them out. You think of that. Literally the best leaders that they had. Seven Mile Road, would you imagine if Saul, Paul, was on our pastoral team, the guy who wrote Romans, wouldn't you imagine we would do everything we could to keep that brother on staff here? You think of this. Right, Because it's much easier to say from a pulpit behind here than to actually live out. We're nine years in, and yet could you imagine the fear we'd have if we were to send away some of our leaders, some of our elders? We'd have this panic in our soul about what about us? A baby church plant, one year old. Saul and Barnabas had gathered this church, taught this church for a year, raised up some leaders, and now the Holy Spirit was saying to them, I need two-fifths of this team out. Three of you will be left who will now lead this one-year-old baby church plant because Saul and Barnabas are set apart for a different work. And they pray and they send them off. Hear me. Becoming a church-planting church is much easier said from this pulpit than actually done. But if we're going to do it, we must now prepare for the reality. We will not just part with our possessions. We will pack up U-Hauls and send away some of our best people. We will not give scraps and leftovers and what we can afford and what we can give in such a way that it won't hurt us. You know why they didn't give that way? Because that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not God gave to the world. God so loved the world that he gave his scraps, that he gave his leftovers, that he gave what he could afford that he could give to make sure that it didn't hurt or cost. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, meaning heaven emptied itself to it had nothing bigger or better to empty itself. God gave till it cost him. God gave till it sacrificed. God gave till it hurt. There has never been a hurt in the universe more seismic than giving up Jesus. And God gave Jesus. And because of that generosity and that sacrifice, we have been blessed. And to the measure we get the gospel, we will sacrifice. To the measure we understand and believe the gospel, we will give. 
and to the measure we don't, we won't. When we see his open hands, our hands will be open, whether it be with our stuff or with our people. And if our hands are closed, it's because we have not fully understood how open his hands are. So we need to ask the Lord, help me believe the gospel more so that my hands would do as Jesus' hands did. If we're going to be a church planting church, it will need gospel-driven generosity and sacrifice. Fourth and lastly, in a church planting church, there is a desperate dependence on God to do the work. In a church planting church, the members are not spectators who watch. They are missionaries, disciple makers who do. In a church planting church, there's a team of diverse people who are united around Christ and his mission. In a church planting church, there's gospel-driven generosity and sacrifice. Lastly, in a church planting church, there is a desperate dependence on God to do the work. I'll say this quickly. I think as you read 19 to 30, it is unmistakable and clear that the Lord was the one who was doing the work at Antioch. There's no doubt about it. In fact, in 20, they preached the gospel, but 21 follows that by saying, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Right? They preached, but why was it effective? Because the hand of the Lord was with them. As they sowed the seeds of the gospel, it was God's hand who was gathering the harvest. Right? They sowed the seeds of Jesus' good news. The Lord's hand was gathering the harvest. The Lord was at work. Or you just think of this. You think of how this church even got started and tell me that the Lord's hand is not clearly in it. I was blown away just considering this. Would you think with me, how did the church plant at Antioch start? And tell me it's not the Lord's hand. The church plant at Antioch started because in chapter 7, Stephen was put to death. So Satan, in his brilliance, came up with a strategy. I'm going to end Christianity. So I'm going to take this prized man, Stephen, and I'm going to kill him. And you remember, who was leading the charge, giving his approval? One Saul of Tarsus. So through Saul of Tarsus, Satan is going to kill the church by killing Stephen. What happens? Acts 8 starts with, and as a result of Stephen's death, the persecution scatters the church so that they go to Phoenicia in the north and Cyprus and Syria. And so as a direct direct result of Stephen being killed by Saul, the church at Antioch is born. And then you think of this. He persecuted Stephen and the church to kill the church. Not only does that lead to the planting of Antioch, but then who does Antioch fetch to pastor that church? But Saul. And then once Saul is get there, who does that church send out for global missions? The guy tried to kill Christianity. And so he got Stephen. And in doing so, he ended up planting Antioch and Antioch pastoring Antioch and then being sent out from Antioch as a planter to the world. You tell me, is that not the hand of the Lord? It was so clear and so evident. This was God's doing. And only God writes stories like that. You want to kill the church? I'm going to end up having you plant, pastor, and be sent out by that very church. There is a desperate dependence saying, Lord, in the next three years, we will build the sails. We will get after this with all our might. We're going to try a church planting residency. We're going to mobilize everything we can. We're going to call our people to pray, to give, and to go. We'll build the sails, but Lord, unless the wind of your Holy Spirit blows, 
these sails won't take us anywhere. So we'll build the sails, but now what will we accompany with? What did they do in 13.1? Fasting and prayer, because God has to do this. And to the degree we believe that, we will fast and pray. We will say with our bodies, Lord, more than my body needs food, our church needs you. I am hungry right now, but I am hungrier for you to move. And to that degree, I will forsake food if it means that we will have you. Because we are desperately dependent on you doing this work. And so if we're going to be a church planting church, then please, no more spectating. We repent of that today. If I can't think of a person I'm making a disciple today, I go, it's year one again. God, by your spirit, he reset again. No more spectating. I'm putting myself back in. All my chips are back in, in the middle of the table. I have been made a disciple to make disciples. And Lord, I'm part of this team, this diverse team with different people. I should never be in this room, but here I am because we're united around Christ. And I'm all in on you, your mission, and this church. And Lord, everything I have is for you. You can take it all because if you gave your all to me, everything I have, including myself, is available for you to send and use any way you'd like. And Lord, we are desperately dependent on you because if your spirit doesn't blow, then at best we've got a vision. But if it does, then we will become a church planting church. Let's pray to that end. Father, we pray that even now the Holy Spirit might stir in us a renewed vigor. Wake us up, splash cold water on our face, rouse us from our stupor of thinking that someone else will do the work. If your spirit is in us, if you died for us, if you commanded us and called us, then please help us today to get off the bench and into your game, to be a part of your work, to see disciples made, and as a result, churches planted. And please move us in all the ways that we need to be moved. Thank you that here there is no condemnation. That's not from you. But there is Holy Spirit conviction. That is from you. May we respond to it, repent, and turn ourselves again to your work so that we might become a church-planting church. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We come.